Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. Well, my next guest on West Coast Live started out uh, as, a, as a little girl, <laughs> became a political activist, and then also discovered the marvels of what it is to have the community around a table of food and started Chez Panisse 41 years ago. And she is also, since 1996, uh, with the Chez Panisse Foundation, which last year became the Edible Schoolyard Project, has been encouraging programs and uh, the school lunch initiative to uh, encourage people to eat better, eat locally, uh, and to understand the connection between the food and the planet. Will you please welcome Alice Waters to West Coast Live. I don't know if you had a chance to hear backstage uh, about uh, these thanks for all of your meals. And you can have that one. Some of the food, eggs and savory greens, a delicious plum sorbet. And then this one about Soul Food Farm uh, closing in some way. And then there's a bakery in Berkeley uh, that's just closed, Bread Garden, open for many years. Oh, yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, up on uh, Domingo. Last day was yesterday, apparently. So, but. We ever have too many bakeries. True. I do. Staff of life, bread. Yeah. And uh, we have probably the most wonderful people making bread in the Bay Area that there is on the planet. And they. That's a large statement. It's, it is a large statement, but they, they have traveled around the world and uh, they're purists. And they. Um, many of them buy the wheat uh, from uh, places close by in California, and they mill it, and they are really serious about taste and cooking it in wood ovens, and uh, there's something really special about the bread uh, in the Bay Area, and I think it's really influenced bread across the country, and I know it's influenced Carl, uh, uh, Carlo Petrini uh, over there in Italy with slow food. He thinks it's, uh, it's the greatest bread that he's ever tasted, so. Well, well. <laughs> now I really want lunch. Yeah. And you're, and you're the vice president of Slow Food International. I am. Yeah. I am. Uh, How are the meetings? Are they, are they slow? Are they, <laughs> they, they take your time? Or? Uh, well, the big meeting, uh, the big gathering of slow food is in Torino, in Italy. And it happens every two years. And farmers and cooks and uh, cheerleaders from around the country gather. And it's like, it feels like the real UN to me. I mean, I've, I, you just, it, no one speaks the same language. They're translating in seven languages all the time simultaneously. And 10,000 people go to slow food and just uh, connect in. I mean, we just all know we're there to take care of the land. And it's, our, it's really our common language. And it's so beautiful to uh, uh, 
just have the ideas, the diversity of a, from 151 countries. Uh, the the uh, some of them bring seats in their pockets. <laughs> I'm always trying to grab those, um, but it's it's really hopeful and really inspiring. 151 countries. Yeah. Is that all of them? I don't think so. I think there is some missing. How many countries are there in the world? 190. 190. 190. Well, it's close. It's yes, close. It's close and, and when they come, I mean, we get into, you get into issues of food justice, of uh, the ethics of growing food, uh, of, of paying people who grow it. I mean, one of the long-time practices at your restaurant, paying the the staff, uh, you know, there's a, a service charge for them that's automatically added into the bill that isn't an optional tip. Um, it's much more European in that way. Uh, anyway, it's uh, this consciousness of the economics, the relationship between economics and the quality of, of food and of life for everyone must be on the agenda there. Oh, it is. And the idea is to really to build those food communities um, a little bit uh, in the way that we have built a community around Chez Panisse. Now, I didn't ever, uh, I didn't begin from uh, the idea of supporting sustainable farmers. I was only looking for taste. I was just, I was a Francophile who, who just uh, wanted, uh, you know, that perfect raspberry. I, I wanted the peach, I wanted a, a certain salad. And in my search for that, I ended up at the doorsteps of all of the local organic farmers. And I was so happy to have their produce that I was willing to pay any price to have it. I mean, really, I, 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 I'm not a farmer, and I saw the work that goes into producing the food. And I couldn't believe, really, that they were selling it so inexpensively. And so I wanted them to continue to work with us, and so I encouraged them, uh, uh, probably by paying um, more for the food, uh, because I was afraid that other people would take it if I didn't pay, pay enough. Uh, but it ended up... Um, building a relationship that I really treasure. I mean, we, it, people say, oh, well, it must take so much time to call up these farmers and, and go out there or have them bring in the food or pick it up at the farmer's markets. But that really is the pleasure of my life, and it's the pleasure for the people who are cooking in the kitchen. They call up Bob Kennard, who's our main farmer up in Sonoma, and, and they say, Bob, what's out there in the field today? And he says, well, you know, you're going to have to take all my apricots, because that's what's, that's what's ripe on the tree. So we'll, okay, Bob, we'll take all your apricots. He said, you know, I'm not going to have as much salad. <laughs> you know, you might need to get that from somebody else. And, and we get the apricots on the branch. And everybody who eats an apricot, a Blenheim apricot, in May or June at Chez Panisse, comes back again. And they just want those apricots. Or those Suncrest peaches. I had my first peach yesterday from Masmasamoto. And I just thought it was the 
best thing I've ever eaten. I, I couldn't, I, I haven't had them for a year. And I, it, was, it was just sublime. Doesn't, doesn't Moss set up trees and individuals can have trees there and go collect the peaches themselves? They have to collect the peaches themselves because some of the, the varieties of peaches that he has there, and one of them is the Fael Berda, which is one of my favorite peaches, they just don't travel. And he doesn't want to take all the time and charge what it would cost to, to pack them up and ship them to us. And so he says, you know, if you want those peaches, you get a group of friends and you adopt a tree. And we'll call you up when it's time to pick. And then you just go out with your friends and you pick and you take them home and or have a feast in the feast in the orchard. There in the field, you just have a picnic and eat in the field. But that's the kind of food community that 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 we've been building over the last forty-one years. And it's not just about fruits and vegetables; it's about everything. It's eggs and chickens and and grass-fed beef and. Uh, we've gotten to know an incredible group of people. And when we are in need, they're there to help us, and vice versa. And I think that really is the way to build a community, is to uh, have an exchange that is incredibly valuable. That it's really, I I'm, I'm, want to support them so that they take care of the land for the future for all of us, and uh, they give us this food, and I'm, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing. The Edible Schoolyard Project, in part, is to convey this idea to the next generations, and your political involvement with the Slow Food International is, is part of that. Um, what's the receptivity? How is, you know, is this a transplantable idea, have you found? Well. I think this is a way of thinking that has been around since the beginning of civilization. I mean, really, truly. <laughs> I mean, it's not a new idea that you would buy food from people that are growing it locally, that you would sell it in a marketplace, much like uh, the farmer's markets that are all nearby us now. And that you would take it home, and that you would cook it with your family and your friends, and eat together. Uh, that you would, you know, uh, celebrate the harvest of garlic, which just happened at Chez Panisse a couple of weeks ago, uh, on Bastille Day. And that you would really consider uh, food as something very precious. Uh, uh, the most important, We're, we, we all eat, and we need to eat. And in order to eat something nutritious, it has to come from a land that is fertile and full of the nutrients that we need to grow that food. Uh, so what we're trying to do with, with the Edible Schoolyard Project is kind of bring everyone back to his senses, come back home again. And it's an incredible thing that when you begin with children in kindergarten, they just fall in love right away. They haven't been out in nature. And when they go out there and they have a class in the garden, they, uh, they're fascinated. 
And it's still inside them. It's part of their DNA to, to love Mother Nature. It really is. And uh, to sit at a table. It's something that they like to do. So this is a hard kind of sell, if you will. Now, we've been involved in Berkeley with a middle school for the last 16 years. And you would think, God, teenage kids. Um, they're going to push this aside. But on the contrary, that, I mean, it may take a couple of weeks, and for the really hard ones, maybe six weeks to get to kale. But, <laughs> to get to kale? <laughs> to get to kale, I was thinking. And uh, that's one of the first things that they fall in love with. It's strange. But you, I mean, if you make it tasty, a little garlic and a little olive oil, I mean, it really is irresistible. And um, I, I think what we need to do is to make edible education the priority. I, I think education is the only way we're really going to change the food system and really come back to a place of, um, of nourishment and, and, and really uh, understand the values that we need to live on this planet together. So in, I, I, I think of this as my uh, stimulus plan. So if you put the money in the schools, let's say the NGOs give money to the schools and the government in this country gives money to schools to feed all children. The government being us. The government being us. So we put it to the schools. And we give them a criteria for the buying of that food. So it should come from local, sustainable farmers and ranchers and producers. So that gives money to that whole community out there, beyond the school. And they give the food directly with out middlemen to the school to make lunch. Now, if every kid in this country ate for free at school, because I think you have to eat for free. Every child needs to eat uh, a nutritious, breakfast, lunch, and after-school snack in order to pay attention in school. And that's where the ultimate food justice is. It's in school. And you begin in kindergarten, and you go all the way through high school. And we know that the best kind of education, the best the, what works best is when it's interactive. So you engage the kids in the garden classroom or in a kitchen classroom, not to teach them how to farm or how to cook necessarily, but you do a math class in the garden. And while they're measuring the beds, they're picking the raspberries and they're eating them. They may be planting the seeds. So they're learning about stewardship and 
they're learning about compost. They all know about compost. They can name all the edible flowers in the garden within a couple of weeks. I mean, it's an amazing thing. I mean, they're fascinated by this. And then you go into the kitchen classroom and you may be learning to read by writing a recipe. And they are very interested in eating. <laughs> very interested in eating. And then you bring them to the ritual of the table and you have a conversation. And if you ate every day at lunchtime in this way, if it, it just washes these values over you sort of effortlessly. And these are those slow food values. Now, I really believe and I, uh, that, that we absolutely are what we eat. So when we're eating fast food, we're eating fast food values. You know, fast, cheap, and easy. That you can always have more of whatever you want, 24-7. You can eat in your car. Every, food should be cheap. We don't get, who's in the kitchen cooking? We have no idea. We can have the same hamburger in Salina, Kansas as we can have in Germany. We have no idea where our food comes from. Or it could be a, from a cow that's from Argentina, one from Mexico, <laughs> you know, one from Texas, all kind of mixed in the same patty. Indeed. <laughs> I haven't had one of those. <laughs> but it's deeply about provenance. I, I'm not talking about really, uh, I, I, of course, I'm talking about good taste and a balanced diet, but I'm not saying, uh, you know, I'm not trying to dictate what kids eat. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to open up their senses. We're trying to get them to touch it, to taste it, to smell it, to see how beautiful it is, to kind of listen to the bees out there in the, in the garden. And when their senses are fine-tuned, they can make good choices from themselves, and they, they can fall in love. And that's, that's what really is going to change their diet. It's not going to be changed if they are told to eat something healthy. Good health is the outcome of, of really loving food that's good for you. Alice Waters, Edible Schoolyard Project, Chez Panisse. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.